Good talk from the brother. Thank you so much, brother, for, for starting us there. What a better place to begin a conference on following Jesus than who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? Uh, you began with David Platt's middle class Jesus. You said at the introduction at the heart of biblical discipleship is a correct understanding of, of Jesus and what he came to do. And, and people don't mind talking about Jesus if it fits what they want, essentially. That's my paraphrase. Whereas by the time you got to the end of the talk, you were saying that a right understanding of Jesus will lead to a kind of death. You said at the core of discipleship is death. Whoa. You die to you, your agenda, your priorities. And I want to think about it, just help us think about it a little bit further in the context of, I want to go down the, the trail of prosperity gospel. Not just a hard prosperity gospel in heretical churches, but let's say a softer prosperity gospel that shows up in our churches. So I don't want to just point the finger out there. I want to look, help, you help us and other thoughts any brothers have, look inward. How do we know when we're preaching in a way that emphasizes what we get versus preaching in a way that exalts Christ and who he is and what we get comes out of that and what we're called to? What are signs of man-centered preaching, soft prosperity preaching, Uh, I teach preaching here, and I even said in class Thursday, it's kind of like how you do theology. Where you start will determine where you go. If you start with man, you'll end up being anthropocentric both in your theology and in your preaching. If you start with God, you're far more likely to be theocentric in your theology and theocentric in your preaching. The tendency today, of course, is to start like the old liberals did with Harry Emerson Fosdick, uh, who was the epitome of this, and if you want to see it done well, uh, with some need, uh, some problem, and then you work your way from there. Now, I, again, believe uh, that you can use felt needs to scratch a surface to get to real authentic needs, but what happens too often is we just start there and stay there, and the God vision and the Christ vision of the text gets eclipsed. So I would rather start the other way with, uh, in fact, I have five questions that I tell my students they should ask when they preach and teach from a text, and they should ask them in this order. What does this text teach me about God? What does this text teach me about fallen humanity? I love Brian Chappell's fallen condition focus uh, idea. How does this text show us Christ? What does God want me to know? What does God want me to do? And I think if you follow those questions in that order, you'll deal with real, genuine needs, but you will do so within a theocentric, Christocentric context. And as a result of that, you'll have to address the hard demands, and there are hard demands for the gospel. And you'll also then deal also better, I think, Jonathan, with sins um, that we sometimes find acceptable. Um, which are just as heinous to God as the ones we like to point out. Look at those bad guys out there. Yeah, okay, so we can see those things out there, but what about your, your selfishness? What about your pride? What about your materialism? What about your anger? What about your uh, laziness? What about your heart? 
which of course is where it all comes back to anyway, which Jesus also made very clear in other places, especially in Mark's gospel. So for me, I think uh, we just have to recognize that we should always start first with the, you know, judgment starts in the house of God, to quote Hebrews. Our preaching should also probably start with the house of God first and foremost. This is where, again, we make such a mistake uh, where we identify America as something like a new Israel, and you hear people praying for America and talking about America in some context of being God's chosen people. We're not God's chosen people, and that's a faulty theology, and it has infected a lot of churches in the South. And so um, just recognize now, you've got to deal with the church where they are to get them where you want them to go. And if you come in, uh, you know, with your machete out, it may be that you wind up cutting your own head off before you have a chance to minister effectively the word to them. And I think that's something you've got to take note of. And I'm not always good at that. I, 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 of course, I'm a hit and run guy. I don't have to stay. I get to mess it up on Sunday. Then the pastor has to fix the mess that I left behind. <laughs> and I try not to do that much anymore. And so um, uh, it's not by accident, for example, that in our chapel, there's not an American flag on one side and a Christian flag on the other uh, because um, Christianity is not a nationalized religion. It's a worldwide religion among all ethnicities, and I don't want anyone to feel and, and misrepresent the gospel by thinking it somehow it's equated with being American. It is not. It is not. But you say that in some churches, and uh, they're going to get very uncomfortable in a hurry. That's okay. Um, pray that God gives you the wisdom of how to implement that. A lot there. Hierarchies of sin, a nationalistic Jesus. Brothers, other thoughts on how we self-identify a prosperity gospel kind of preaching versus a biblical here's Jesus preaching? I think uh, one thing we can fall into this a step towards that is uh, when we preach a text, jump into application too quickly. Um, treating our explanation of the text and the implications of what's happening in the passage, treating that like it's really the intro to the good stuff, which is application. So that we'll start with a text. And so people will leave a sermon knowing what to do, what Jesus wants them to do, but they won't really know who Jesus is. And they won't really know why Jesus has called them to do that. All they know is I should be nice to my wife, but they won't understand that it has anything to do with the way that Jesus treated his church. They won't understand anything about the implications that marriage has for the way that the gospel is proclaimed in the world. And what that will turn into really easy is using the Bible uh, as a place we go to look for specific activities we do instead of a place we go to uh, encounter the living God through his son Jesus. And so we want to guard against that. And one of the ways we can guard against that is by actually loving the text, actually loving what God has to say, loving the truth we see about Jesus in that text and making much of Jesus so that people are looking for what to do, not just because it's a rule book, but because that Lord is so awesome. I want to know how to honor him and to show off his glory in my life. Yeah. Amen. Anyone else on that? Anyone else had a question for Danny from his talk? Any, anything you wanted to follow up on? Well, if you're wanting to think about theology of prosperity as it gets closer to home, I'm just thinking, how do we do that without start naming authors? And including authors who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I think 
kind of like Tripp was saying there, uh, we can approach the text and get it wrong. Even if our theology is right, we can for, for good reason. So some of the ways that I think people in the name of sharing the gospel get it wrong is by so emphasizing the benefit, sort of the opposite of what you did today, and, and uh, downplaying the cost. And their motives, I have no doubt of their motives. A lot of us may have gotten saved through gospel presentations like that. But sadly, a lot of other people got saved too who are going to hell. So those gospel presentations aren't without a cost and a pretty serious cost. So what do we do? How, how do we, I'm, I'm appreciating your question, how do we find in ourselves, in our own camp, in our own stuff, uh, a wrong downplaying of the, the cost? And I think a lot of the answer, honestly, is in what you're saying, just appreciate what we're being told is true. So, so I appreciate the way, Danny, you really talked to us about Jesus. We spent time on Jesus, thinking about who Jesus was, what he came to do, and the, the cost for us came only toward the end. It was in, in response to that, and it kind of it made sense in the context of that. But I think when we, when we try to lead too fast with joy or purpose or just pick any of the big, huge, wonderful, good, true words in the Bible, uh, and, you know, I was in 2 Corinthians 1 on Wednesday night at our church where Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, I'm working for your joy. You know, he made these decisions to change his travel plans. For your joy. So it's not these aren't good themes. They're great themes. But I think we, as Bible-believing Christians, are able to mishandle them with the best of motives. You know, it's interesting because in the context of discipleship, I would say right belief always leads to right behavior. So orthodoxy always leads to orthopraxy. And it's, it's crazy that there are some discipleship ministries out there that want to use everything but the Bible. And, and when I tell our guys, when I meet with guys, we never graduate from the Bible. <laughs> you know, we graduate from college, you can graduate, yeah, you can graduate from seminary, you can graduate with your doctorate, you never graduate beyond the Bible. What I appreciate about what you said is the, the, the daily dying and so I was asking myself, how do you daily die? If I don't have brothers in my church, men in my discipling relationships who are holding me accountable and questioning me personally, whether it be in the area of sermon development and sermon critique, something I learned from you, on a weekly basis. And brothers, uh, if you're preaching, one of the greatest things you can do is have a feedback loop. Now, is it, is it humbling? You better believe it because you think you knock it out the park and you get together on Monday and you say, what'd you guys think? And they say, well, it was good, but the first illustration had nothing to do with the message, you know? So that's, that's pretty hard to hear at times. Uh, but let me tell you something, that time over the long haul is invaluable. And so that's the first thing. But the second thing is, how do you die daily? Uh, it's through that intimate, accountable relationship. And you're just not gonna get that in a larger setting. You're not gonna get that in the church service uh, because we have these casual friendships. And I would even submit you're not even going to get that in the life group or your Sunday school class because a guy's not going to walk in with his wife sitting next to him in a mixed couple and say, hey, pray for me, guys. I'm struggling with pornography. He's not going to do that. A, a woman's not going to come in and say, hey, uh, in a mixed setting with her husband and friends sitting across her. Hey, pray for me. I have a problem talking about all the women in our fellowship. She's not going to do that, right? She's not going to do that. But over time, here's what's neat about a discipling relationship with trusted friends, not at first, over time, you will feel confident enough to look another man in the eyeball and say, hey, my marriage is hanging on by a thread. Uh, can we talk about that? And so that's how I think we, we die daily. And here's an adage I always live by. You can write this down. You can't expect what you don't inspect. 
So, so, so we can't expect our people to die daily if we're not inspecting that in their life and holding them accountable. And not only do we need to hold them accountable, we need brothers to hold us accountable as well. Jonathan, I would just say this. I, I want to reaffirm what Tripp said. I just am convinced, though it wasn't the nature of this message, discipleship starts with faithful exposition. Just staying in the Word, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word. And it's going to deal with these acceptable sins that we don't make much of when we get to in the Bible and find out the Bible makes a whole lot of these things. So if you're just working your way through the text faithfully, you'll have a, a good theological balance, but you can't ignore those things. You can't paper over them, and you wind up discovering, you know, I did it after Mark did. I taught through the Gospel of Mark, one of the most enjoyable, fruitful experiences of my life. I came away nervous about the fact that Jesus reserved his most scathing words throughout that book for religious leaders. Not the common people, the religious leaders. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not a Pharisee. Well, but I could be like a Pharisee. I mean, in the sense of being unregenerate, but I could be acting like the unregenerate if I'm not careful. And his scathing, hostile, hard words were for them. And it did a work in my life working through that gospel over a year's period of time. Mark, you often say that the discipling ministry starts in what the brothers who stood when you asked who, who, who's the preacher. Who, who, stand again if you're, you're the main preacher of the church. You're the one who delivers the weekly message. Why, Mark, why do, you, why do you often say that the discipling ministry in the church starts with those guys in the weekly gathering? I couldn't understand what you just said. It's, it's, yeah. The guys who just stood right. are the main preachers. Right. Following what Danny just said, why do you often say that the discipling ministry of a church starts with what they do in the pulpit? Well, it's pretty much your book, Reverberation. If you've not read Jonathan Lehman's book, it's just called Reverberation. It's just a great encouragement to see how the word that's preached from the pulpit is the kind of center point. It's the heart of the church. And it's from that goes out the whole life of the church. Um, yeah. Brother, you had a question you wanted to ask, Danny, Mark? Yeah, first a comment and then a question. So my comment would be that the beautiful thing about talking about the cost in the gospel is that there is a new, I think, awareness of either cost as relates to following Jesus culturally or at least a heightened sensitivity uh, to it because the little the space that used to be I can be a Christian and it felt pretty comfortable in the culture that that space is getting smaller and smaller and smaller the challenge is is that many of our people either don't have a, a, a right understanding of what the gospel is in terms of engagement with culture or they're not familiar with how to be able to navigate through that and so I, I think that the the, the the nexus of the gospel and the cost is really something that needs to be emphasized because it's what our people are wrestling with. And I guess my question for the two of you and Thibidi as well, just over the years, kind of looking historically at culture, discussions about Jesus, have you seen the discussion inside of the church change in terms of what theologians and pastors are talking about in regards to who is Jesus over the years? There's the Lordship debate a number of years ago. Have you seen that kind of move over the last maybe 15, 20 years, or maybe not. Why you put me with the old guys? <laughs> I, think, I think he called us old. Out of respect so, and of honor. The, of the 15 decades that you've been observing the church, brother. <laughs> 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 
I'm sure it depends on which church. I mean, different families of churches are going to go through different struggles. Uh, you come from a sort of King James-only family of churches, which is going to have its own set of struggles that are pretty different from the churches that I came, I, I've come from. I've come uh, historically just early on in life from sort of county seat, First Baptist Church, Southern Baptist churches in the South. The Beatties come from, well, African-American churches here in North Carolina, but then being a Muslim and then stepping into, what would you say, evangelical reformed churches and now church planning. So it probably depends on what, I mean, overall, uh, I think Danny, you know, reminded us of the struggle over the authority of scripture 35 years ago. It was very sharp. I mean, I was a student here in the area at the time. Uh, that was a, a hard struggle. I was over at Duke University just down the road. Southeastern Seminary at the time was noted for things the opposite of what it's noted for now. The Baptist Student Union minister at Duke at the time, who was a woman, was so upset when she heard I'd been asked to speak to the Baptist Student Union, and I was another undergrad there who was a Baptist, that she was so angry because she knew my theology that she canceled the meeting officially, brought the students to Southeastern Seminary, where there was a Buddhist Christian dialogue going on that night. So, you know, that, that was 35 years ago. It was, it was inerrancy, but in that, as you said, it was tied up everything about Christ. Uh, but I think, I think all of the controversies kind of are always going on. So you could write a dissertation on the history of the lordship controversy, but if you look at it, it, it it's always there. It's, it's always occurring in different ways. Other thoughts, brothers? That's, that last point is kind of what I was thinking. And, and, uh, but thinking also, I mean, I, I appreciate uh, what Robbie was saying earlier about sort of right belief should lead to right behavior. I don't know that it's, it's very inexorable, though. I don't, I don't know that that is always the case, and that's me well, mechanistically the, the case. didn't with the demons. That's exactly right. It's mechanistically the case. Uh, I think that ought to be our aspiration. I think that should be what's driving the disciple-making that we're engaged in. But if I think about sort of the church right now and, and some of the problems with the church right now, I'd have to say that, yeah, there are places where our theology is far better than our practice. Uh, we just take the justice concerns that are roiling the church right now. I, I think our, our formal theology about justice or things of that sort, our understanding of neighbor love, theoretically, is better than our practice of it, right? And so I, I think part of what I was gripped by in your sermon, a great sermon, by the way, thank you for blessing us this morning. I think part of what I was gripped by and intrigued by in your sermon is you were talking about the cost and you were talking about the way in which conversion should be flipping your sense of priorities and values. And you shared your own testimony in that. It was, it was wonderful. Um, I guess the question I was left with is, is how you brothers are cultivating that flip for persons that you're discipling. Because I think that it's sort of one of the issues that the church is always struggling with is the kind of worldliness and looking for acceptance in the world, looking for relevance in the world, looking, um, to use a phrase you used a moment ago, sort of to engage the culture. And I think a lot of that is inspired by good stuff. But a lot of it, it seems to me, is a lack of this fundamental flipping that he was pointing to as he was preaching the cross for us this morning. So I'm just wondering how we're helping people walk through that. I think one simple way that, that is accessible to most of us is trying to have relationships with people not like us. It's just so helpful. So right now in our, in our, in our intern class with us, so Caleb, you want to stand up? Caleb grew up in Sweden. Keep standing. Brian, you want to stand up? He's lived in the United Arab Emirates for the last 15 years. 
Victor, you want to stand up? Victor's a pastor in China. Uh, he's just with us for five months. Uh, Simeon, you want to stand up? Simeon's from the Caribbean. Alberto, you want to stand up? He's from the Dominican Republic. I can't see who else is there. Armand, you want to stand up? Armand was brought up as a Muslim. At 20 years old, came to Christ in Kazakhstan, where he's from. Well, this, Jonas, you want to stand up? Jonas is from Brazil. He's a pastor in Brazil. He's with us for five months. So our class is not always as international as this, but this is like an, an extreme example of the way we're benefited in our discussions because we don't all have the same cultural assumptions, yet we've all read the same Bible. We're all talking about the same stuff. We're not going to all have the same histories, even the way our churches have abused things. So, you know, when you're in America, you've got a, a certain narrative you step into. Most, most of these brothers aren't coming from America, but they're, they're in the image of God. They're reading the same Bible. Yeah, you guys can sit down. Thank you. Um, so that's a huge help. And, and you can do that by just getting to know somebody of a different generation, a different ethnicity, somebody who just does something very different in life than you do, but who's your brother or sister in Christ, building those relationships. And you'll learn a lot through that. Let me, you said exactly what I was going to say. Southeastern in recent years has become known for what we call our Kingdom Diversity Initiative, where we have conscientiously tried to move forward in creating a seminary that will serve churches that looks like the church in heaven. And so God gave us in particular two wonderful gifts. Uh, one is an African-American brother, Walter Strickland, and another is a Hispanic brother, Edgar Ponte whom David Platt has stolen from me, and I hope God curses him for it. In, in, in I think you stole Edgar from Southern Seminary. No, no, he came to see me. I, did, I didn't go look him now. He, so anyway, you sent him. Southern took him from us. I mean. Okay, fair enough. But anyway, what you said is exactly right. They see things as brothers from different ethnic backgrounds that I don't see. I have blind spots. So, for example, um, it may have been Thabiti, but there was someone that came and preached here in chapel that I did a tweet about, said, come and hear this wonderful African-American preacher. And Edgar came to see me and said, and he's so humble, gracious, kind, he said, um, wouldn't it be wonderful if we got to the point at Southeastern where we didn't have to preface it with African-American? We just have this wonderful preacher, and it doesn't matter his background, his ethnicity. And I thought, yes, that's exactly where I want us to go. And I was just wanting to encourage our students to come. I didn't mean anything intentionally to be offensive by it. And he said, well, it may not be offensive, but it's, is it really necessary? And so I've learned in the last several years, one of the best things we can do in this type of discipleship context is be quiet and listen get around you like you've got now brothers that can speak into your life with a perspective that just by the very nature of your upbringing and who you are you know Bultmann was wrong about a lot but he was right when he said exegesis without presuppositions is impossible because we all bring who we are our cultural baggage to the text so if we have other brothers who don't have our baggage now they've got their own but then we can benefit them in this mutual discipleship kind of relationship yeah, and I would just add uh, what you said. Uh, so knowledge uh, or information leads to behavior, but it's always obedience-based discipleship. So I think the challenge for us is not, it's not to gather together just to learn Wayne Grudem or, or to study uh, the new book that comes out uh, because you'll always be looking for the new book. You know, years ago there was this great campaign. Uh, I don't know if it was great, but it was WWJD. Remember, it was great in the scale of, of great because uh, everybody was doing it. But I want to name one WDJD. What did Jesus do? 
right? Uh, because sadly, we have many people leading ministries who want to experience the ministry of Jesus, but they divorce themselves from the method that Jesus used. And the method was making disciples. And remember in the Great Commission, Jesus didn't say, go therefore and teach them all things. I think we forget that word obey. Go, go, go teach them to obey all things that I've commanded you. Um, you know, as a new Christian, I always wanted to learn these new things and, and new insights and new nuggets. John Wesley said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that I have a hard time with. It's those things that I do understand. Don't steal, don't cheat, don't look, don't lust. Uh, so I think it's just, it's, it's simplistic. You know, discipleship is not really rocket science. It's simplistic. It's studying the Word of God, living out the Word of God, and living like Jesus lived. We have seven minutes left. The, one of the main things we're going to be talking about in the next talks and, and through this time is discipling, uh, moving out of the pulpit and into the life of the church together, right, in these one-on-one -on -one relationships. So let, me, let me just transition from what you brothers were speaking about a moment ago. Um, how do I do that across comfortable lines, across ethnic lines, democratic, uh, demographic lines, economic lines? I'm a pastor. A lot of the people in my church, I'm kind of playing off of what you talked about last night at dinner, Mark. A lot of people in my church look like me, but I, I have a heart to just start discipling a row that looks like what you just said, Mark. What do I do? Where do I start? Thoughts, brothers? I think one of the things you can do is to ask somebody who's not like you, what do you see? What do you hear? When I talk about who Jesus is, how does that translate? Or tell me how that has worked out either in your life or in your background? Or um, what is it, um, how have you figured out how to follow Jesus in your particular uh, context? And then allowing them to be able to, to, to speak in and to mirror what they're, uh, what they're seeing. Um, and that doesn't just relate to this particular subject, but I think in particular relates to um, racial reconciliation other conversations that we need to have that we don't, um, my ability to discern um, what I sound like is very limited. And if I can have somebody who can just mirror that back, and then if you can get to a layer where they're actually, you, you receive the first answer really well to get to the next layer and the third, because what you want is the third and fourth layer, but it, it, but it takes, I think, humility and grace and intentionality to say, what do you hear, what do you see? Um, and when I would say, too, when we're building relationships, special relationships where we want to disciple and pour into somebody who looks different than us, I think we want a balance of uh, an awareness of cultural differences. So an awareness enough that people understand, you know, I'm listening, I want to understand you, understand those differences, but also not, uh, not putting people in the box of what you assume about a group of people, treating people as individuals. So, you know, one example I had when I was in uh, Bible college, there was this professor. He'd walk down the hall. He'd be like, hey, hey, Mark. Hey, John. And then he'd see me. He'd be like, what's up, dog? <laughs> I speak the same English you do, sir. You know, uh, 
you know, don't assume that when you and I have conversations that you have to turn into a different person for us to, uh, don't assume all the things you assume about uh, the people who are different than you that you've just seen on TV. Like, let's talk as individuals. Be aware that there are cultural differences, but get to know me as an individual with my own kind of individual story. And that kind of opens us up to listen and to learn and to really connect in an authentic way. Eat together. I'll, I'll echo that. Eat together. Um, eat. Mark was saying eat together. Food. Fellowship, meals. Um, I, I pick up on something Trip said. Because I, I was sitting here thinking about that question, and I thought, it feels like to me there's, well, two things. One is I hope that everyone feels like this is sort of engaging people not like you is not simply a nice thing to do, but a necessary thing to do. And, and what provokes that for me in part is, I remember when I landed at NC State in 88, freshman orientation, uh, we had at that time what was called the African American Symposium. African American students came in about a day or two earlier, and we talked about what it would be like to be on the campus, African American faculty and staff. And at that time, you were almost always taught you gotta be bicultural if you're African American. You, you gotta know how to walk your own land but you also have to know how to sort of work this institution. And, and the rules are different than probably where you've come from. And so there was this- Du Bois sort of thinking here? I'm sorry. Du Bois thinking, kind of living in two well, worlds? The, the, the veil and all that good stuff, yeah. And so there was this two-ness, right? And that was very intentionally being sort of cultivated and taught. I don't know that there's another place for, and this is a question, I really don't know, if there's a place where my white brothers and sisters I ever self-consciously taught that necessity. And if there is a place... When we go overseas? Oh, so, so missions, perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps, if they're good missionaries. But they, you know, a lot of times, they're not thinking that way. They're exporting Western culture and values and Americanism. Um, and if there is a place where that ought to happen, it certainly ought to be the local church, right? Where we are sort of displacing ourselves, sort of taking ourselves out of the center of the thing, putting Christ in the center of the thing, and, and therefore discovering the, the necessity of engaging people who are not like us, right? Um, the, the other thing I want to say on that just real quickly is sort of on trips. So I think there's been a shift. So I was taught that very self-consciously in, in the mid and late 80s. And now I meet a number of uh, persons from ethnic backgrounds for whom that's not a given, that they should have to be bicultural in that way, uh, in whom there is this kind of insistence that they be met on their own cultural terms. Now, I think that's, I think that's a good development. I, I think there's a kind of uh, efficacy and esteem that's behind that. But I think what that means is, is that then you have to know when you can talk to someone and use the Queen's English, and when actually the person would prefer you to say, what's up, dog? Um, and, and, that, and learning that kind of flexibility to become all things to all people, right? Uh, Paul and Corinthians. I just want to say that's necessary and exhort people to that gladly and to embrace that, not as an inconvenience or, oh, something I'm doing nicely for you folks who are in my church, but no, as part of what it means to be one new man in Christ uh, and to live that out with some fluency. Brother, can I follow up? Help us not just think across ethnic lines. You've recently planted a church a year ago in a poor neighborhood. Any thoughts on crossing wealthier to poorer lines or various economic steps like that? 
Yeah, that's another aspect of identity that needs to be flipped over and, and challenged in our, in our discipleship and disciple-making, isn't it? Right, just quick thoughts in the interest of time. One is um, we're not the Savior, right? So, so, so do away with any sense of I'm here, well, up-to-do, educated, middle-class person to save all you folks who are poor, right? Uh, that's just not going to be good for anybody. Um, secondly, then assume a posture of learning. Um, don't, don't sort of walk around thinking that poor people have nothing to contribute to your life. Uh, I, I think oftentimes by virtue of their poverty, they have much to teach us, uh, not the least of which is, you know, how to do with less uh, and, and give more. Um, there's a generosity among my poor neighbors that I think shames uh, me and I think shames a lot of more affluent folks. Um, and, and so it's not about pity. It's not about condescension. Um, but it's about our shared humanity. Uh, it's about sort of crossing that line. It's about James 2 uh, and, and meditating on what, on what we're taught in God's Word, obeying what we're taught in God's Word in James 2, not despising the poor uh, and so on, and not favoring the rich who oppresses you. Uh, and so it's also sometimes seeing some of the depravity in, in affluence and in the wealthy and, 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 and among the, the powerful. Um, to see these things clearly with biblical eyes as best we can and, and be applying the scripture in that way. It, it's striking to me that, that when you read the Gospels, um, the folks who respond to the, God, to the gospel in the Gospels are the poor, yes. right? And we have in our minds, I think, that those are the hard-to-reach people. Those are the folks who flock to Jesus. Yeah. Those folks who come to hard-to-reach people are the wealthy and the religious leaders. Those are the hard-hearted, right? Um, and so I was just trying to have our perspective shaped by the scripture, it seems to me, is really important. Can I just add one thing to that? Um, and especially as a pastor at a new church plant in a rougher neighborhood, uh, not when we are uh, ministering across any kind of lines, not making reference to the great sacrifices we're making to be with you people, you know. So even going across any lines, whether that's cultural lines or ethnic lines or socioeconomic lines, never making it seem like I could be doing the fun stuff, but I love Jesus, so I chose to spend time with you. <laughs> that's not only offensive, but it says something about our own hearts and the superiority we see in ourselves, that we consider it some kind of sacrifice to pour into human beings made in the image of God. There's no difference in value because there's a difference in wealth uh, and, and uh we would do well to work on that in our heart and, and be careful about the way we speak to when we interact with people. One of the books you received is Church in Hard Places. Mark mentioned earlier, Mez McConnell has a line in that book about how working in the Scottish schemes, which is sort of the, the housing projects of sorts, communities in Scotland, is relatively easy to talk about the gospel with people compared to People say, to the, people say to him, oh, I can't believe, it must be so hard. And he thinks, well, I think about middle-class America, that's got to be hard, you know, in terms of receptivity to the gospel. You just think of D.C. I mean, I've been there 22 years. I have seen at least scores of church planters come to start new churches. And the only places they can really do that are on Capitol Hill, where you have a lot of transient population, or in southeast or northeast in poorer areas where you will find more people are interested. The absolute graveyard, no one can start a church in Northwest, west of 16th Street in Rock Creek Parkway. You, you cannot do that. 
There is no place that is cheap enough for you to rent. There are no people who care about spiritual matters. You know, there are a few churches in the suburbs that a few Christians there will drive out to. But that, that's, it's exactly what you're saying, brother. That's the, that's the spiritual center of opposition to Christianity. And, and yet, how few actually come east of the river to plant the church? They, 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 would, they would sort of, in romantic ways, envision themselves pioneering that work in Northwest. And, and that's not to say people shouldn't go. I just think, you know, when you look at where the planting resources are just in our city, they're by and large Capitol Hill and trying to move up into Northwest. Meanwhile, Southeast, Northeast, East of the River, um, which is marked by, you know, a history of poverty and, and, and other things. And marked by Israel, more interest in the gospel. And marked by more interest in the gospel, largely neglected, largely neglected. And, and I think, so there's a priority thing here. And I think a worldliness thing here that shows yeah. up even in our, in our church planting and, and, our, and our good ambitions to see the gospel go forward. Friends, it's lunchtime. Uh, I commend a few announcements. I, I commend the book I just mentioned, but a couple of other books to, to mention. Mark, why, why do you like church basics? I think they're going to put the slide up. Why do you like the series, series, the church basics? Those right there. They're short. I'm a big fan of short on different areas of church government and polity and so forth. Mark wrote a couple of them. Very good. We commend them to you. Uh, Why do you like the book Don't Fire Your Church Members? Okay, that's a book by Jonathan. He'd find it awkward to talk about it. I think this would be one of the best books you could read with your church leaders this year. Uh, If I were going to give you three books this year, I would say one by me and Jamie Dunlop called Compelling Community. One by Jonathan, this one, which gives you the kind of skeleton. It helps you realize that every member of your church has a job description. And so often in the last 30 years, Baptists threw their Bible out, even while they championed inerrancy, and they grabbed business books. I'll run church like it's a business. And so pastors become CEOs, and they don't want the inefficiency of congregationalism where you have fights over photocopiers. And Well, Jonathan goes back to the Bible and he points out that saved people are supposed to be members of local churches, and those members of local churches in the Bible have certain responsibilities and helps you to think about that. The third one I'd suggest is a 16-year-old book by Michael mm, and Christian Smith called Divided by Faith. It's not Emerson? It may be Emerson, Michael Emerson. But I know it's Christian Smith called Divided by Faith. And some of the issues we're talking about, about black-white divide in America, this book does as good a job or a better job than any other book I've found in helping particularly white people understand if racism sounds too hard because you're saying I don't like somebody individually because of their skin color and I know that's not true. All right, that's too hard to sell. Let's go for this. We have this middle category of racialization, which is exactly what Danny and Edgar were talking about. You know, when you tell a story about somebody, and I had to say, my Kazakh friend, Armand. Well, he is from Kazakhstan, and I know you'll find that interesting, but it's cool when we get to the place where I can say my friend, Armand, and where there are enough Kazakhs around who know Jesus, or or you just assume somebody's ethnicity is going to be a part of who they are, but it's not the main thing. The main thing you have is your shared identity in Christ. Anyway, when when you step into a culture more where there's ethnic equilibrium, uh then you're in a place that's much healthier for the gospel for churches 
this Divided by Faith book is not uh, a Christian book, but I think it will help Christians understand what the situation really is. So OUP, Oxford University Press, 2000, uh, Christian Smith, Divided by Faith. Last resource to recommend. Robbie, you did a video for Nine Marks for the Church Basics series under the basics. What, what was your video? Uh, it was on discipleship. On the on Great Commission. Uh, Great Commission, fulfilling the Great Commission. And, and Mark, why are you excited about this series, the Basics series, this, this video set? I just watched this about three weeks ago, and I watched all of them. Fans Pittman on Stewardship, Robbie on Great Commission, H.B. Charles on Baptism and the Lord's Supper, Juan Sanchez on Discipline. Uh, it's just really good stuff. It, it doesn't have the Nine Marks logo on there. If that'll scare your church, it's Lifeway. Great. Um, the, the DVD presentations are good. Some of the guys on there are really, like, remarkable and, you know, doing a great job on their stuff. And you'll hear more about uh, the Great Commission later, Lord willing, from Robbie. But I think you'd find this a really useful format. Yeah.